go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we're grateful to be able to worship you. We're, we're grateful that you have revealed yourself to us by your word and by your son. So, Father, as we enter into this time, we ask that we would give you right worship. That we would rejoice in our inward being, knowing that you have redeemed us. And Father, that we would not just do this individually, but we would do this as a community, as a church. Father, we thank you that we have this opportunity. We thank you that you have gifted us with so many resources to be able to do this. But Father, you've done so not just for our own good, but for the good of those around us. So Father, we praise you for this opportunity we had last night to even in small ways, be able to minister to our community and be able to remind them uh, that we are here and that you are at work. And Father, there is so much to rejoice. Father, give us strength, give us courage as we continue to minister to our community and to our neighbors. Father, that we would go with your gospel, with this good news of Christ paying the penalty for our sin. Father, that we would be faithful in ministering to our community this gospel. Father, we also ask that you would be in our midst, even as we worship this morning, that you would remind us of your goodness. Maybe there are some that are doubting your goodness, are doubting your care for them. Father, we pray that you would be near to the brokenhearted. Father, for those who are anxious, and Father, this year there are seemingly so many things to be anxious about. Father, we pray that you would cause peace to overflow. Father, we rejoice in the sounds of these little ones. God, we rejoice in what you're doing in our church by bringing young families, by raising young families in our midst. Father, we pray that you would continue to do that. And Father, not just young and not just old, Father, we ask that you would do this work of bringing all. Father, young and old. Father, that you would make us a diverse church that represents the community that we are a part of. Father, help us to do these things. We cannot do it on our own. Father, we think of church members. Father, we continue to lift up, though we're so grateful to see them. Father, we think of BJ and Aaron and Daniel. Father, we pray that your care would continue to be shown on them. Father, that you would Continue to cause Daniel to grow, and to be healthy. And Father, ultimately that you would cause him to trust in you. That he would, through even the ministry of this church, would trust in Christ. Father, we pray this for Aurora. We pray this for Catherine. And we pray this for William. Father, we know that life does not come apart from Christ. And so, Father, as they grow, 
cause them to trust in Christ. And Father, we don't just think about those who are in our midst. We think of our shut-ins, Pauline and Norma Jean Bryant. We pray that you would be near to them. Father, give us opportunities to serve them. Father, allow us to connect with them, to reach out to them, to know how we can best pray for them and care for them. And Father, if it be your will that you would allow at some time or another for them to be in our midst. Father, we also pray, as was mentioned earlier, for Auburndale Baptist Church and for Brian Croft especially. Father, as they make this transition and begin seeking a new pastor, Father, we ask that you would cause this transition to be so smooth. Father, we pray for their other pastors that they would guide and lead and direct wisely and faithfully. Father, that their church members would submit to them, would follow them as they follow Christ. Father, be with Brian. Be with his health. God, we ask that you would allow him, uh, whether it's COVID or other things, Father, that you would heal him completely, that he would be able to celebrate this transition and the work that you have called him to and are now calling him to this new work of practical shepherding. Father, be with him. Bless his family and bless uh, the ministry that he's able to do. Father, give him strength in this season. Father, cause him to continue to be faithful. Father, as we open up your word, we know that it does not err. It does not return void. So we ask you, by your Spirit, to illumine these words. Father, to sear them onto our hearts that we might be able to live in more Christ-likeness. Father, help both the preacher and help the hearer. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are in Zechariah chapter 12. And, and I'm, I'm going to ask a question, and this is not rhetorical. Uh, don't worry, only Andrew's hand will be seen on the live stream. <laughs> but it won't matter to the people on the live stream. I'm curious... Because in John, we were in John for almost 42 sermons, if I remember correctly. And in Zechariah, I think we're going to be somewhere around 14 to 16. So here's the question. Has Zechariah, our study in Zechariah, seemed excruciatingly long to you? If Zechariah has been excruciatingly long to you, would you please just raise your hand? Okay. You saw my hand was raised too, right? Like long nights, early mornings, studying what on earth is going on here? Okay, I, I thought so. Now let me ask you this. Second question. Has Zachariah also blessed your socks off? If Zachariah has blessed your socks off, would you just raise your hand? Okay. I mean, keep your socks on, right? But... I didn't know a better term than blessed your socks off. It has been both a rich blessing to me to study uh, this book, but man, oh man, am I going to rejoice when we wrap up chapter 14. I was 
able to be on a call with some pastors on Monday of this week, and we were talking about pastoral discouragement. And I told them I'm a young pastor and haven't faced much discouragement, uh, but one thing that is somewhat of a discouragement is trudging through Zechariah week after week after week. And these seasoned pastors looked at me and they said, what were you thinking? Why? Why would you do that? Well, I felt that this was where the Lord had us, and I felt that Zechariah was going to inform us on a lot of Old Testament history, but then also was going to point us most vividly to Christ. And I think that he has done that, even at the fallibility of this preacher. So we're in Zechariah chapter 12. And before I ask you to stand, I want you to envision your favorite, especially for the guys, your favorite war movie. Your favorite war movie. It doesn't have to just be a war movie. It could be uh, like the Lord of the Rings, right? I think that would that would suffice as a war movie. There are some excellent uh, scenes of war there. Maybe you're thinking Saving Private Ryan, or uh, I would also think The Patriot is a pretty awesome war movie. Well, if Zechariah chapter 12 were a war movie, because it is talking about a battle... It would be the most anticlimactic story. And thankfully, Zechariah doesn't end at chapter 12, right? I've had to say this before multiple times. But if Zechariah 12 ended the way that it ended, it would end with the main character being killed at the hands of his, his friends. It would end with the main character being killed at the hands of his friends. That's what Zechariah 12 is about. It's about this battle. It's about how the Lord works and fights for his people and through his people. When the nations wage war against God's people, God fights for them, he fights with them, and he uses them. But then we see that God fighting alongside his people is pierced. He's killed. But in the midst of that, in the midst of that longing, in the midst of that mourning, it brings about in the heart of the people a spirit of repentance. And we see that in Jesus. We see that Jesus was handed over by the chief priests, the Jews. And he was pierced. As Isaiah 53 says, By his stripes we are healed. He was bruised for our iniquities. This is the one in whom Zechariah prophesies in chapter 12. So if you would stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. We'll be in Zechariah chapter 12, verses 1 through verse 1 of chapter 13. Zechariah chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone. For all the peoples, all who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. 
On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open. When I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness, then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood like a flaming torch among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left and all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning in Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the houses of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by itself and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. May God be honored in the reading of his word. You may be seated. There's a lot going on in this chapter, and this seems like a pretty repetitive introduction. Another chapter with a lot going on. One thing in the last little bit of Zechariah is this begins a new section, the the last and final section, this last oracle or last message that Zechariah has been given by the Lord. And in this last oracle, depending upon how you translate one specific phrase, there are 17 or 16 uses of the phrase on that day. You might ask why 16 or 17? Well, one of the 17 is translated in English to be behold, a day is coming. So it seems as though there are 17 occurrences driving at the same point that this day is not here but is coming. So Zechariah, as he's been prophesying for some things that had happened in his time, he's also prophesying for things that would come, and then he's ultimately prophesying for things that even in our day have yet to come and be realized. And that's why this is the trudge. (laughs) Because not only are we looking to eternity future, but we are looking all the way back through the installation of Judah and Israel 
and God's chosen kings of David and others. But it presents us this incredible history of what has gone on. So here's the unfolding of Zechariah chapter 12. I think it happens in four particular movements and four particular things that I want you to see. First, we see in verse 1 of chapter 12, we see the one who speaks. Secondly, we see in verses 2 through 9 that the use of God's people in the last days. So the use of God's people in the last days. In verses 10 through 14, we see mourning the one whom they pierced. Mourning the one whom they pierced. And fourth and finally, a fountain opened up. A fountain opened up. So let's begin in turn. The one who speaks. Zechariah has continued in his prophecies to reestablish that these things became true. Most recently in that when Zechariah prophesied against the foolish shepherds, when he prophesied judgment and breaking of the two staves, what happened? The sheep traders recognized that this was the word of the Lord. That the protection of God's covenant of protection was ending. So Zechariah, again, wants his readers to know this is not a prophecy of Zechariah, but this comes from the Lord. We see in Jesus that he is the true prophet. That he not only speaks everything in accordance with what the Father tells him, but he is God. He does not misspeak as a representative of God. He perfectly speaks as God himself. Likewise, the prophets in the Old Testament spoke the word of God so that when they said, thus says the Lord, the ears of those who heard it believed. And likewise today, in one sense, I would be a prophet. Now let's not go to the far end as some religions do because God has not revealed truth by me. The only thing that I reveal as truth is coming from this. So if I begin to speak out of this, let your ears hear and take steps to correct. But as long as I'm in God's word and I'm speaking this truth, I proclaim each Sunday, week in and week out, thus says the Lord. Not because it's revelation to me, but because it's been spoken and written and preserved in God's inerrant word. And likewise, Zechariah wants us to realize this is the word of the Lord. Oracle of the word of the Lord concerning who? Concerning Israel. Now let's take a step back. Chapter 11, God has annulled the covenant of union. Meaning what? That the brotherhood of Judah, the southern kingdom, and Israel, the northern kingdom, is no more. So, as we read through chapter 12, we will see time and time again, Jerusalem, Israel, Judah, the house of David, all of these things. What do those things mean? It means the people of God. 
Those whom God has chosen to worship him, to love him, and to follow him in covenant obedience. The one to whom he said in the beginning of chapter 1, return to me and I will return to you. So this is a message concerning all of the people of God. Here's what he says. Petitioning his hearers to know who this God is. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Why would this be important? Why is it important to ground this message in God's creative capacities? Well, why were they in exile in the first place? Because they began to follow false gods. They began to create for them gods that would promise them this thing or that thing. And so Zechariah is saying, this is the God who created it all. And also as we get to chapters 13 and 14, as Zechariah begins to unfold a new creation, this grounding of God's capacity to create in the first place is a reminder to them of his capacity to create again. So the oracle, the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Zechariah wants us to know this is the one who speaks. It is God, the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Now, as Zechariah lays this foundation, he now goes into this battle. He goes into this battle and he shows that God chooses to use his people in these last days. Verses 2 through 9. The use of God's people in these last days. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding people. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against it. And on that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. In just these short two verses, Zechariah shows the assurance that God is choosing to use his people. And he uses two profound metaphors. He says that he'll make his people into a cup of staggering. In the book of Psalms, time and time again, David will use this this cup imagery in a positive sense, a cup of blessing that overflows. Paul, later in the New Testament, picks up on this as well. But this cup is not a cup of blessing. When God is choosing to make His people a cup, He makes it a cup of staggering, not of blessing. This is a cup of His Wrath poured out on them. God uses his people in these last days that they would be recipients of a cup of wrath. But secondly, he uses a metaphor not only of a cup of staggering, but as a huge rock. A rock the likes that if any were to gather against it, if any were to try and pick it up, they would hurt themselves. Paul in either 1st or 2nd Corinthians says that Christ is this rock. 
that the rock, if you do not hide under it, you will be crushed by it. So what are we seeing here? We're seeing that judgment is coming for who? Not the people of God, but the people who wage war against the people of God. That as the nations gather against it, God provides protection. But He not only provides protection, He also causes panic. And this panic in the following verses is much like that of the Exodus. When God continually reminds Pharaoh, let my people go. Let them go. Let them come and worship me. Let them go from slavery. And what happens? It takes ten plagues for Pharaoh finally to relent. To let his people go and worship. And what was that tenth plague? That all of the firstborn would die. But for those that had the blood over their doorways, they were preserved. They were rescued. That will be important as we go forward. But as Israel is given ransom there in Egypt, as they go in freedom, where does God provide a way? Through the ocean, through the sea. And He provides dry land for the people to walk through. But when Egypt reneges on their promise... God causes panic and stirs the horses and the chariots. And what does He do? He swallows them up as His people go through in peace. Once again, God will provide this way of rescue. And it won't just come by the people. Right? This is not a name it and claim it, Philippians 4.13. We just did all things through Christ who strengthened me. What does he say in verse 5? Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, We did it, guys. We did it. Way to go. No. The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. So not a, hey, we did it. But a, wow. We can't cause panic within horses. We can't cause deliverance. We can't do these things. It's only through the Lord of hosts. Let us be people that recognize that too. While we did many things to prepare for our trick-or-treat outreach, the things that we ultimately desire, only God can do. So sure, we can continue to go and invite people to come to our church, and we should do those things, but we can't make them come. If you've been parents you know that you can't even make your own kids do the things that you want them to do. Preaching to myself. We can't make people come to our church. But you know who can? God can. So who knows what will happen in the next 12 to 18 months. But may we be those who say, when we see God at work, that it's, wow, we did it. No. 
Let us be those who say, praise the Lord. He is the one. He provided strength through Himself. Let us be those who continue to say that. God's continued use of His people in the last days continues with another two metaphors. That they would be like that of a blazing pot in the midst of wood and like a flaming torch among sheaves. Both of those illustrations are that of fire or excessive temperature. And the things that surround them are things that are extremely flammable. And he gives the answer in the middle of verse 6. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. God uses his people in the last days. He gives them strength. He provides for them. He also causes panic on the surrounding nations. And in verse 7, not only does he provide, but he gives salvation. He gives salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not surpass that of Judah. Now there's a lot to unpack just in that specific text. So if you want to come and ask me what on earth does that mean, uh, we can certainly talk about that, but I'm not going to elaborate a ton. But I want to take us back to Second Second uh, Samuel verse 7. When God provides and covenants with David, what does he say? Saul has been chasing him. Saul has sought to persecute him. Saul has sought to kill him because he recognizes David has been anointed king. And all that's left is for him to take the throne. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God covenants himself with David and says, on this throne, one of your descendants will sit forever. But what happened in exile? It ended. And what happened before exile? The northern and the southern kingdoms split within like three generations of David. So this promise seemingly came to an end. All right, God, what use is having the throne if it's multiple kingdoms now? And what use is the throne coming back from exile? It's no longer even Judah in the eyes of the people. It's Yehud, a province in Persia. They didn't refer to them as Judah anymore. So God is restoring again the kingdom, and he's doing it through the same means that he did in the beginning, meaning that in the midst of darkness, in the midst of even this exile, God's promises remain true. The Lord will give salvation. Verse 8, on that day the Lord will protect them. So not only will He save them, but He will protect them. But protect like what? Protect to a... Protect to somebody who lives in a guarded community and a house with crazy, incredible locks. Protection doesn't need to come from outside of their own means. But what is the protection that's given here? It's not given, and, and the strongest among them will have 
even more protection. As if it were something minimal. No, the protection here is that even the feeblest, the ones who struggle to walk, let's go back to the shepherd and the sheep analogy again, the ones who have broken limbs and are going to be devoured by wolves, even them, they will be like David. Now this could very easily turn into a be like David kind of sermon, but it's not. Who was David? David was the one after God's own heart. Then it says, they shall be like David and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. So this on that day is important here. This on that day, you can't name and claim, oh my gosh, I'm going to be made like God. This is going to be great, as some religions do. That's not what's going on here. But more likely, we should interpret this as Paul writes in the New Testament, that the perishable body on the other side of eternity becomes imperishable. That we all see Christ through our own eyes. And we become like Him. So God continues to use His people. He protects them. He causes panic. And lastly, just as He uses His people against the nations, God Himself is fighting against the nations as well. Verse 9, And on that day I will seek to destroy all all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Church, there are a lot of things that can cause us to be anxious right now as the people of God. My First Amendment rights are being taken. Our, our country's gone into hell in a handbasket. You know this promise? And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Our kingdom is Christ's kingdom. Our king is Christ. And he will set all other earthly kingdoms under his foot. That should have gotten a way bigger amen than that. Christ will destroy all those who come against the people of God. Who are they? They're you. If you follow and trust in Christ, the people that He comes and serves along with and gives His strength to and promises, I'll destroy anyone who comes against you, is you. This promise is for you. This promise is for me. That in 2020, where we feel like the whole world is coming to an end, Jesus says, I'm going to be there with you. I'll never leave you and forsake you. He's making a people and a place for His glory. For the worship of His name that far supersedes any of the best kingdoms of this earth. So church, if you feel like the world is caving in against you and you feel like all of the opposition is against you, it is. And that's okay. Because God is promising to use you and will destroy those who come against those who bear His name. So that should give us assurance, not only that He promises that, but it should also cause us to persevere.
that when it might be so easy to vote a certain way or to follow a certain worldview, that if we follow Scripture, we have promises to take to the bank, that this is true, that this is bedrock. But if we turn away, if we turn away to any other salvation and any other name apart from the name of Jesus, this promise is not for you. So this should cause us to see extreme joy that God through Christ has promised His people. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I will come against on this church, on the church that Jesus secured. The gates of hell won't even prevail. So this battle is yet to come, but this battle's already in the scorebooks, guys. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. And if we continue to follow Jesus, and only Jesus, we win too. So the one who speaks is the Lord God. And then we see in point two that the use of God's people is seen in the last days. And third, we see mourning over the one who is pierced. So while God provides, while God protects, while God causes panic and calamity in the enemies of God, His people are just as bad as the enemies. I think of in Braveheart, you know, William Wallace is the one who just like stirs the forces to just do incredible things. And he ultimately at the end of the movie is killed at the hands of the enemy in an excruciating manner. Just imagine if that would have happened earlier by his own troops. His own troops turned on him. Because this is what happens This is what happens to the one who is pierced. And here we see allusions to what happened to Jesus in that John, in John chapter 19, verse 37, when Jesus is crucified, points back to these verses. This is thus fulfilled. And here's what happens when the one is pierced, verse 10, I'll pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace. And please for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they've pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. There's some interesting language there. When they look on me, on whom they have pierced. Zechariah, with almost this incredible Christology, is able to point, just as John does hundreds of years later, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus, the Messiah, is God. The second person of the Trinity, the Son. So when God says, when they look on me... He can say that with definite assurance because they pierce him in Christ. And the result of this piercing brings about mourning in the people. They'll mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. 
On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad Ramon in the plains of Megiddo. Everybody knows what that is, right? It was in your, your daily devotional this morning, right? <laughs> I had to search it too. I was like, I have no idea what's going on. One of the kings of Judah by the name of Josiah was killed in this valley, in this ravine. And they instituted after this was one of the good kings, okay? <laughs> This is one of the kings who followed after the Lord, who sought to institute uh, things that would promote the worship of God and not other idols. So when he was pierced, literally pierced with a spear, the people mourned. They wept. And they actually began uh, a festival to remember this day. And we do the same thing. Our king was pierced for our transgressions, and we remember that literally today. In taking of the Lord's Supper, we remember our pierced and broken Savior. So is our response to that, is it one of celebration or is it one of mourning? I think it should be both. That we should celebrate and rejoice in such a great salvation that we have in Christ, but their response is that of mourning because they realize that this piercing happened by their own hands. Verse 12 unpacks this repentance, this mourning. And I'm not going to get into it because it's all and they and their household and their family and their household. Uh, let me just say the land shall mourn, each family by itself the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves. And it continues in that same progression. What's going on there? The importance is that repentance is personal. That sure, we can come as a collective body and repent for, for the sins of groups, but when repentance gets really, 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 really intimate is when we repent personally. That we would repent and turn from our own sin. From the moment that we see sin as being external from ourselves and start to see it as internal and we begin to pray, Oh, wretched man, woman that I am. That's when repentance gets real. That this repentance, because of the, the pierced son, they repent and mourn just as they mourned for King Josiah when he was pierced. So we've seen the one who speaks. We've seen God's use of his people in the last days. We've seen mourning the one whom they pierced. And fourth and finally, we'll see that on that day there shall be a fountain opened. That a fountain opened up. It would be an incredible travesty if it stopped if the story stopped with the pierced one if the stories in the gospel stopped with and jesus was crucified dead and buried but it didn't i remember that easter hymn all we sing it all the time up from the grave he arose something about victory over his foes no 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 that's why you didn't hire me for that role <laughs> I yield. <laughs> but 
through Christ's work on the cross, it didn't end. It didn't end in the grave. It continued. And through his body broken, through his blood shed, a fountain opened up. Chapter 13, verse 1. On that day there shall be a fountain opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Where does this cleansing come from? It comes from the pierced one. It doesn't come through baptism. It doesn't come through uh, any other means. It comes through Jesus. Cleansing and remission of sin comes only through Jesus. So this day has happened. The pierced one, the Son of God, God Himself was pierced. Not only did he open a fountain of living water that would well up in us to eternal life, he also cut the, cur- the curtain so that we now have access to God through him, through his work. So, Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman. Do you recognize, the, if you only recognize the gift that was standing before you, you wouldn't ask me about physical water. So church, if you've not trusted in Christ, if you've not drank through this fountain of cleansing and forgiveness of sins that comes only through Christ, let me say it's available today. You can trust in Christ today. Recognizing, looking to Him, the one whom has been pierced for your transgressions, for your sins, for my sins. May the Lord cause a heart of repentance in you that wells up unto salvation in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the goodness of Christ, for his redeeming work on the cross, forgiving us of our sins and our trespasses. Father, we pray that we would be a repentant people. Father, that we would persevere in the times that beset us, knowing that you protect us and you will never leave us or forsake us. Thank you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.